Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about the civilizations of the ancient Americas. You know, the ones that Western history books spend about a page discussing. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnhart. I've been an archaeologist, an explorer, and a seeker of esoteric knowledge all around the Americas for over 30 years now. This podcast is just me, freed from the lecture podium and talking like we're just having a beer together. Sometimes I'll tell stories of my adventures. Other times I'll share what I've learned about the various cultures that were here before Columbus. Basically, it'll be anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast, Beholden to No One. I'm just having fun with it. I hope you do too. So without further ado, kick back, relax, and let's get started. Season 3, Episode 7, Ancient American Drugs Last month, I was up in Dallas attending the funeral of a dear old friend. As so often happens at sad events like those, I ran into people I hadn't seen in years. One, to my surprise, had been listening to my little podcast. He suggested that I do a podcast on Native American use of hallucinogens. I thought about it and agreed. That's a topic that many people are interested in. So, here you go, Eric. Thanks for the good idea. I struggled with the title for this episode. I don't like the term drugs. It can have a negative, debaucherous connotation. I would have preferred to say altered states of consciousness or maybe contact with the supernatural world through imbibed substances but those wouldn't fit neatly on a title line. And my mostly Western audience wouldn't understand what this episode was about. So, fine, drugs. But perhaps that's a good way as any to explain the most important thing I want to get across here. They weren't drugs to ancient Americans. To modern Western civilization, these substances are recreational, in some very limited ways medicinal, but in large part they're seen as for fun, or for calming, or perhaps to numb one's pain. They were none of that for ancient Native America. In essence, they were plant spirits interacting with human spirits, and their purpose was not recreational. They were for ceremony, or purification, or enlightenment, or healing, or even for spiritually harming others. They unlocked power, knowledge, and communication with the spirit world. So please understand that I'm not talking about cool stuff that Indians use to totally trip. I'm talking about things that were fundamental parts of ancient spirituality. And for some cultures who have managed to retain their traditions, modern spirituality. Now, a few ground rules and disclaimers before I get into this topic. First, I'm not an expert on this subject, and this isn't going to be some highly researched, peer-reviewed presentation. This is just me talking off the top of my head about various things I've learned over the years. It's not going to be exhaustive. Just 30 minutes or so of discussion. This topic could fill an entire college semester. And to be completely honest, I might have some of this wrong. If I do, 
hopefully I don't defend anyone of Native American descent. I'm slightly less concerned with offending any non-Native people who are taking this subject too seriously. Be mindful of that cultural appropriation line, my friends. One other caveat here. You're all well aware that there are thousands of ancient American cultures, stretching from Alaska to Chile, so it's impossible to talk about how they use drugs with a broad brush. So what I'll do here is I'll talk about various substances and then hop around from culture to culture discussing how they used them. To start off with, not all pre-Columbian drugs are the same. Some are mind-altering, and we call those hallucinogens. Some are mood-altering, like alcohol and tobacco. Yet others are stimulants, like caffeine or coca. A final category I think fits in here are substances meant to purify, like incense, or things that make you throw up and empty your stomach. Let's start with stimulants. Again, they weren't viewed as stimulants like the Western world understands them. Their effects were seen more like spiritual purifiers or empowerments. There were no doubt many more than I'm aware of, but I'll talk about just two major ones here, black drink and coca. Black drink was a caffeinated brew used by the Mississippian civilization of North America and still used among modern tribes of that same area. It's essentially Native American coffee, but made from the roasted leaves and stems of the Yopon holly bush. If you live in the southern U.S., you might just have it in your front yard as landscaping. Don't eat the red berries. Those are poisonous. Ancient Americans knew that and only used stems and leaves to extract the caffeine. The preparation and use of black drink was witnessed by many European explorers, but they didn't say much about why they were drinking it. It was boiled until the water turned black, hence black drink, strained, and then drank warm out of big marine shells, and only by men during rituals or lengthy important discussions. Archaeologically, we find evidence of black drink among the Mississippians for sure. Thousands of conch shells cut in half and etched with all sorts of religious imagery have been found from Oklahoma to Florida and as far north as the Great Lakes, often with black residue inside. A few at Cahokia were chemically analyzed and the presence of caffeine was indeed confirmed. So that means that black drink is at least a thousand years old. But carved half-shells are also found at Hopewell sites and even some archaic sites. So, there's good reason to believe it goes back 5,000 plus years. The Latin name for Yopan Holly is Lex Vomitoria, and it got that name from early explorers witnessing Native Americans drinking it and then throwing up as part of purification rituals. But it wasn't the Yopan that made them vomit. It was other herbs that they mixed into it. The Cherokees still do it, but which herbs they use is a tribal secret. Another related caffeine drink comes from South America, yerba mate. You probably recognize that name because it's a pretty popular drink today, 
sold in health stores and said to cure all sorts of things from allergies to diabetes. Black drink is actually sold today too, but it's called Casina. You can find it on the internet or in certain hippie coffee shops. Now, the other pre-Columbian stimulant I want to talk about is coca, the famous coca leaves from South America. Coca gets a bad rap because we Westerners figured out how to extract cocaine from it and abuse ourselves. But in its natural form, coca is really a miracle plant. Cocaine is just one of a dozen different alkaloids it contains, and its medicinal properties are many. Still today, millions of Quechua people chew it every day for strength and to abate hunger. As many tourists have discovered, it also abates the effects of altitude sickness. It was used well before European contact. In fact, archaeologist Tom Dillahay found it associated with humans on the Peruvian coast dating back 8,000 years ago. The Spanish did their usual poor job of understanding its religious uses, but they did record it being used by the Inca in divination ceremonies and in the preparation of mummies. Archaeologists frequently find it in the mouths of well-preserved mummies. Inca skeletons all have great teeth, and that's from chewing coca. It acts like a natural toothpaste cleaning their teeth. The Maya, with all of the limestone they eat from using uh, manos and matates made of limestone, their teeth are terrible. But the Inca, because of coca, they had great teeth. The Spanish did note that the Inca conquest of the Amazonian side of the Andes was about controlling vast areas where they could cultivate coca. Coca doesn't grow in high altitudes or in arid climates. Its use is also widely depicted on the ceramics of pre-Inca cultures along Peru's coast. The Chimu, the Moche, the Nazca, the Wari, they all used it. Coca lends its stimulant effect just by chewing, but by adding lime, not the fruit, but burned limestone, you can significantly increase the release of its alkaloids. Especially in moche ceramics, we see people holding little ceramic vessels with bulby bottoms and long, thin necks. They dip sticks into them and suck the ends. Inside the vessels are mixtures of coca leaves and lime. How do we know this? Because people all over the Andes are still doing it today with the very same kind of little ceramic vessels. Well, okay. That's enough to get us started on this subject. I'll take my first commercial break, and when I return, we'll talk about some harder substances. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. Introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of black and brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in black and brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. 
Listeners of this podcast are probably most familiar with the Mayan population during their monumental building eras. Of course, the Mayan people are still with us. Many of them live in isolated locations in the interior of Guatemala. Separated by economic and linguistic factors, they have little access to medical and surgical resources. Smiles for Guatemala consists of medical volunteers from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, assisted by non-medical volunteers, primarily Rotarians, from the Philadelphia region. The team travels to Guatemala on a regular basis to perform free, life-changing surgeries for facial and hand anomalies. For information on how you can contribute to future missions, please go to smilesforguatemala.org. This message is sponsored by a friend of Smiles for Guatemala. So let's move on to mood-altering substances, namely alcohol and tobacco. Actually, if you try hard enough, both of those can become hallucinogenic or mind-altering. Like modern times, tobacco and alcohol were the most commonly used substances in the ancient Americas. But how and why they used them is complicated by European contact and acculturation. As I've said, Native American and Western reasons for using drugs and alcohol are very different. Many Native traditions were lost and forgotten, replaced with European ones, some quicker than others. Especially when it comes to alcohol and tobacco, Europeans saw their use as recreational. Within decades of first contact, many Native Americans also considered them recreational. So, if, say, a 17th century ethnography reports Native people drinking or smoking in a non-religious context, can we be sure that's not European influence? I'll tell you what. If my entire civilization had been wiped out and I was at the mercy of foreigners who considered me subhuman, I'd for sure be hitting the bottle hard. The other complication is that even at first contact, did European explorers understand what they were seeing? A religious ceremony involving group drinking and smoking could have easily looked like a party to a soldier witnessing such an event. So... With those cautions expressed, let's talk about alcohol and tobacco. First, alcohol. Number one thing to explain is that no New World culture distilled alcohol before European contact. It was just fermented and drank. So, more like beer and wine, not hard liquor as we know it. The other thing I want to dispel right off the bat is the false notion that Native Americans are genetically disposed towards alcoholism. Modern medicine and science have dispelled that. No race of people is more susceptible to alcoholism than any other. Well, okay, I've spent enough time up here on my soapbox, so let's get to it. The most widely produced alcohol in the ancient Americas was made of fermented corn. And that makes sense because corn was the number one staple crop in the Americas. More corn led to more ways to use it. It was definitely there in North America, but not a lot of it. 
Ethnographies in the 17th and 18th centuries saw it, but at least as far as I know, it's never been detected archaeologically in most of North America. The exception is in the civilizations of the American Southwest. The Pueblo people and their neighbors, the Apache, made a corn beer that they called Tiswin. It used to be said that the Spanish taught them how to make corn beer, but about a decade ago, archaeologists found fermented corn residues in 800-year-old pots, proving its antiquity. Now, they may have gotten the idea from Mesoamerica, where corn beer was definitely being made. The Maya called it pozol, and the Zapotecs called it tijate. Both cultures would sometimes add fermented coca, too. That's chocolate. The Aztecs made corn beer, too, but their drink of choice was really pulque, made from fermented maguey or agave cactus. The Spanish saw them drinking it and distilled it into what we now know as tequila and mezcal. We don't have a lot of information about how pre-Columbian Maya and Zapotecs viewed it, but we know the Aztecs only imbibed it during important ceremonies and festivals. I read that old people in Aztec society could be drunk whenever they wanted, but younger people were punished for public drinking outside of ceremonial occasions. Pulque is actually becoming very popular again. More and more trende pulqueria bars are opening in Mexico City. I've tried it. It's kind of nasty. The Maya also had a unique alcohol called balche. It was made from the bark of the balche tree. Lacandone Maya in the jungle of Chiapas used it to have balche ceremonies. Women would chew up balche bark and then spit it into a dugout canoe. The saliva helped it ferment quickly, and the whole community would drink it to the point of extreme drunkness. But again, it was a ceremony meant to bond the community through a shared experience, not some kind of frat party. Archaeologically, there's another thing that we know the Maya did, and I'm not sure where to mention it here, so I guess I'll just do it here. A handful of Maya-painted ceramics show people getting enemas, definitely tubes into their butts, and pots nearby with the hieroglyphic symbol Akbal, meaning darkness. I know, yuck. But the people who get the enemas are obviously intoxicated and kind of flopping around. The question is, what's in the pot? Some people think it's alcohol. Others say tobacco. Some even suggest mushrooms. The truth is, we still don't know. That's a dirty little secret that hopefully a residue analysis will figure out for us someday. South America is where corn beer was the most popular. The people of the Andes call it chicha. And it's still everywhere today, made in every little village and town. When you drive through a Quechua village, certain houses are selling it and marked with a red or blue flag outside. Red means it was made in a more modern way, but blue means it's traditional, chewed by women and spit into a container to ferment. The Inca made chicha in huge quantities and served it at festivals. Archaeologically, we find ceramic kegs used to store it and an Inca 
pint glass, or ceramic, I should say, called Karos. The royal Inca had cloisters called Akawasi, full of the most beautiful young women in the land. One of their main jobs was making chicha beer. The king, apparently, made sure that only the hottest chicks in the empire were spitting into his caro. But okay, I've spent enough time talking about beer. Let's move on to tobacco. Tobacco was grown all over the Americas, from New England to Chile. And we all know about Native American peace pipes. All over North America, there were smoking ceremonies that forged and fortified good relationships between people. Archaeologically, we find pipes dating back to the archaic. In New England, and now more recently in Alabama, we've found pipes with nicotine residue dating back to 1500 BCE, so that's 3,500 years. A 2021 dig in Utah uncovered burned tobacco dating back 12,000 years, though I don't think we can be sure that humans were smoking it in that context. The most famous Adena artifact found in Ohio and dating back to at least 100 BCE is the Adena pipe, a straight-line pipe carved in the form of a human being. The culture following the Adena, the Hopewell, produced hundreds of beautiful animal effigy pipes. Smoking was clearly an important part of their ritual life. The Maya smoked tobacco too. Images of their merchant god, God El, commonly show him smoking a big fat cigar. One of my favorite ceramic images depicts a Maya guy leaning casually and smoking what looks to be a thin cigarette. Another shows a guy smoking a cigarette while his wife is making tortillas. But nowhere do we see the magical side of smoking tobacco better than among the tribes of the Amazon. Admittedly, it's modern, but Amazonian traditions have likely changed very little for thousands of years. Many tribes in the Amazon have what anthropologists refer to as tobacco shamans. They chain-smoke a particularly powerful strain of tobacco called Nicotana rustica until they hallucinate. Of course, to them, they're having visions. They smoke so much of it that nicotine oozes from their pores and their skin turns yellow like a jaguar. They say their night vision also improves, just like a jaguar. Tribal members say they even start smelling like jaguar feces. All of these things are taken as proof that the tobacco is eventually turning them into jaguars. In some tribes, shaman apprentices allow their teachers to spit tobacco loogies down their throats. The phlegm is supposed to imbue them with shamanic power. Other tribes don't smoke it, but prefer to use a blowgun and shoot tobacco up their butts like enemas. That's said to cause visions almost instantly. I learned a lot of this years ago from a famous Amazonian anthropologist named Johannes Wilbur. He professed to have been initiated as a shaman in 17 different Amazonian tribes over his lifetime. I met him and asked him about the blowguns and the loogies. 
His eyes glazed over, and he said that he really didn't want to talk about it. I shudder to think about what those tribes did to that guy. But he came out of the jungle with stories that no one else could tell. Okay, that's about all I've got for alcohol and tobacco. I'll take my last commercial break, and when we return, I'll talk about hallucinogens. This break is where commercials should go, but until I find people who'd like to buy the time, I'll just promote what I'm doing. If you like the cultures and places I'm talking about in this podcast, you should consider traveling with my colleagues and I. I'm the director of Maya Exploration Center, a nonprofit dedicated to the better understanding of ancient American civilizations. We do that through things like this podcast, our website, public lectures, and educational travel programs like I just mentioned. If you'd like to find out more about how to get involved, or just give us a donation to continue our work, check us out at www.mayaexploration.org. That's mayaexploration.org. Okay, it's the moment all of you or at least Eric, have been waiting for. Let's talk about full-blown hallucinogens. Here's a funny fact. Of the 120 different hallucinogenic plants on the planet, over 100 of them came from the Americas. The rest of the world collectively have about 15. Just that fact may help to explain why shamanistic traditions were so central and prevalent in ancient American religions. And that's a good segue to reiterate why ancient American civilizations used hallucinogenics. It's about their worldview, or cosmology, if you will. Ancient American religions can be hard for Christians to wrap their heads around. Most of them combine elements that Christians may see as mutually exclusive. They all have deities, some have pantheons of deities, and I think a few of them are more monotheistic than we currently understand. But then they also have elements of what's called animism, the notion that all things in nature have a spirit. Plants, rocks, mountains, bodies of water, everything. The blanket word for those kinds of spirits is the supernatural. Added to that... They all also practiced ancestor worship in one way or another. That's the belief that human souls continue on after death and that the living humans can interact with them in the other world and sometimes call them into the material world. But if you really look at Christian religion, there are more similarities than you might think. For one, yes, there's only one God, but there's also a host of supernatural beings. Angels, demons, the devil, the Holy Ghost. Heck, Moses even had a conversation with a burning bush. How about ancestor worship? Well, how often do Christians say things like, Your grandfather is looking down on you with pride. A full 55% of people in the U.S. believe they have a guardian angel. Think about that and the religious implications. And then there's the saints. 
Christianity recognizes hundreds of saints, and people pray to them for guidance and assistance. They aren't deities. They were once humans, and now they're supernatural beings. See what I'm saying here? Ancient Americans didn't see hallucinogens as just plants or tools. They had spirits. They were animate. They were conscious. When a human ingests them, those spirits provide guidance, information, and sometimes power. They guided humans into the other world, and that other world was the source of that information and power. Christianity divides the other world into two places, heaven and hell, a good place and a bad place. The ancient American other world was more like a continuum. Some cultures did have conceptions of an upper and lower world, but they weren't so black and white. They weren't heaven and hell. The other world is a place where deities and spirits reside. Like humans, they all had the capacity to help or harm. The other world is also the place where the dead go. They follow the path of souls, universally recognized as the Milky Way, into that spirit world. And that brings us back to the nature of hallucinogens. Modern science understands that hallucinogens poison the body. And if you take too much, you die. Ancient people didn't need modern science to learn that the hard way. To their minds, hallucinogens allowed them to enter the liminal space between life and death, essentially to enter the other world. Dreams were the same thing, the mind entering the other world during the symbolic death of sleep, and visions were waking dreams. The majority of hallucinogenic plants that we know ancient Americans were using were Datura, peyote, ayahuasca, San Pedro cactus, and a handful of others like salvia divinorum. As I said earlier, alcohol and tobacco could also become hallucinogenic if you tried hard enough. There are, of course, a bunch of other ones, like morning glory, various mushrooms, even the Texas mountain laurel growing in my front yard. But we don't have good proof of their use in ancient times, so I'll limit myself to a short list here. First, Datura, also called Jimson weed. It's most common in Mexico and the American Southwest, but it grows all over the Americas. It has a couple of different species. Every part of the Datura plant contains powerful hallucinogens. The leaves, the stems, the spiny fruit, all of it. And its effects last a long time, usually 24 to 48 hours. That is a long trip. We know that the Chumash people of California used it in divination and witchcraft. The Chumash also fed it to young boys who would then receive visions of their personal purpose in life. I've read a few things about Algonquins smoking it with tobacco and the Mississippians mixing it into their black drink, but I honestly don't know if we have any proof of that happening in pre-Columbian times. The same thing for Mesoamerica and South America. It's there, and modern curanderos use it for their visions, but we can't yet prove its antiquity. 
Just a few years ago, I walked past a big patch of Daytura less than a kilometer away from the Nazca lines. Maybe if I had taken some, it would have told me its story. Another hallucinogen with a much more limited range, but a known use in ancient times, is peyote. It's a little cactus button that grows only in northern Mexico and parts of far west Texas. The Huichol people, who now live in the Sierra Madres along the Pacific coast, have a tradition of taking peyote and hunting it during an annual pilgrimage to the Chihuahuan Desert. Groups are guided by a shaman in a grueling walk from their mountain homes across the deserts of northern Mexico, visiting sacred sites along the way. The destination is Cerro de Quemada, the mountain where the sun was born. There, where deer actually eat peyote too, the symbolic hunt takes place with bows and arrows. They hunt the peyote, and then they gather it up, and they collectively take it as a group. They have visions directly connected to their creation story, and confess the bad things they've done, seeking atonement. Then they walk all the way back to their mountain homes. Now, that's a modern practice, but ancient cave paintings in the lower Pecos of West Texas seem to depict that very same pilgrimage. First recognized by anthropologist Carolyn Boyd in the 1990s, the paintings depict people walking, then hunting little black dots with bows and arrows by a mountain with deer, and then elongating and floating around like spirits or ghosts. And those paintings are three to 4,000 years old. The best one, by the way, is in the White Shaman Rock Shelter, if you want to look it up. If Boyd is right, and I think she is, then those paintings were made by the ancestors of the Huichol. Now they live in the Sierra Madres because that's where they were marginalized to by European contact. Now, let's jump down to South America, specifically the coastal deserts of Peru. San Pedro cactus grows there in abundance, and it's hallucinogenic. Modern moche coranderos around the city of Trujillo drink it in a brew as part of their healing ceremonies, and modern moche brujos, or witches, use it to spiritually harm people. I've spoken about those traditions at length in my podcasts about the moche and the fang deity, so I'll refer you to those instead of repeating myself here. But I will reiterate that San Pedro cactus appears all over ancient moche pottery and that of the civilization that they evolved from, Chavin. I've been on a lifelong crusade to connect those images to ancient shamanism and the worship of a deity I call the fanged deity. I'll resist the urge to climb up on my fang deity soapbox here, but I will use his obviously jaguar features to lead this discussion into the Amazon. The hallucinogen of choice among the Amazonian tribes is ayahuasca, a vine that grows everywhere there. Sometimes they boil it into a brew, but usually they grind it up into a powder and then snuff it. 
Some tribes prefer to shoot it up their noses or butts with a blowgun. That's probably what happened to poor Johannes Wilbur a few times. Ayahuasca is a ridiculously powerful hallucinogen and currently very popular among Westerners who want to expand their minds. Just Google Ayahuasca Journey for mostly New Age nonsense. But Ayahuasca itself is not nonsense. It is serious stuff. I've never taken it myself, but I've spoken to many people who have. Western people, that is. A startling number of them independently said that the experience began with turning into a puddle of black liquid on the floor. If that's true, count me out. I don't want to be a puddle of black liquid. I've only interacted with one actual Amazonian curandero who uses ayahuasca. It was in her house in the Amazon in Ecuador, at night, and with a group of 15 professors in tow. I didn't mean to be there, but one thing led to another, and there we were in a thatched roof house in the middle of the night, with a rainstorm crashing down, listening to a tiny woman whose bare feet had big toes that were as long as thumbs. She was growing ayahuasca all over her property, and proudly stated that she was currently on it. She did a healing divination ceremony for a woman in our group and concluded that there was something wrong with her organs. That woman privately confessed to me later that she had just been diagnosed with a serious disease in the States just a, a month before. As I translated for the tiny woman, her voice was clear and her words were lucid. At one point she said that after a lifetime of taking it, she only felt normal when she was on ayahuasca. Needless to say, that was a interesting and instructive experience. So at the risk of again exceeding the 30 minutes I try to limit these podcasts to, I can't end it without communicating an important fact. Native Americans don't need hallucinogens to have visions. The famous vision quests taken by young men of the North American tribes those don't involve any drugs. They may smoke a little tobacco at the start of their journey or along the way, but their visions are triggered by starvation and exhaustion. After days of eating and drinking nothing, walking and sometimes climbing mountains, nothing more than their extreme exhaustion produces their visions. If all goes well, they return to the tribe as adults with clarity of purpose. The ancient Maya also took no drugs during their ceremonies, and still don't today. I've had the privilege to attend a variety of modern Maya ceremonies, and no one ever took hallucinogens. Yes, there are some pre-classic Maya stone statues that look like mushrooms, and some theories that the Olmec used to lick a poisonous toad called the Bufu Marinus, but I think both of those are conjecture and probably wrong. Instead, the ancient Maya used starvation and sleep deprivation like the North American tribes, and then bloodletting to actually trigger their visions. Many Maya-carved monuments make that completely clear. Men cut their penises, women pull thorny ropes through the holes in their tongue, 
and close by, their vision appears out of the smoke or the mouth of a snake dangling from the sky. More often than not, it's an ancestor they're communicating with. It's the exhaustion and then the sudden blood loss that triggered the Maya visions, not the use of hallucinogenic plants. So, there you have it. There's a bunch of other facts and theories out there and running around in my head right now, but I should really just wrap it up here. There's a lot more to know on this subject, but I'll leave that to you to seek out on your own. As always, my goal with these podcasts is to make you think. So, go forth, ponder, maybe read a book or two. Until next month, this is Ed, signing off. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support Archeo Ed through my Patreon account. I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.